All right, if you will skip ahead to the New Testament. In the book of Luke, chapter 1. And it's always been my intention, literally since we started as a church fellowship, to begin in Genesis and teach through the Bible, but pretty early on the Lord really put it on my heart to jump ahead and space out, spread out the Gospels uh, before we got to the New Testament. So rather than doing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all four straight in a row at the beginning of the New Testament, when we get there, that we've already done them. There is great significance in looking at and considering and thinking about the life of Jesus. And while Jesus is throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, talked about, prophesied of, seen, present, the Gospels are unique. We get these four different perspectives of these four men looking at Jesus from four different angles and talking about Him. And and what a marvelous way for the Lord to choose to bring us the biography, I guess you could say, of Jesus. He could have had just one comprehensive book written by one guy and put it all together for us. But but this way we get perspective that's different and understanding that's, that's unique to each of the Gospel writers. And we get, I think, a fuller, a more complete picture of Jesus Christ than we would have otherwise. So I'm so thankful for this. Luke talks about this. He opens up his first volume, the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, verse 1, writing, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word." It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught or instructed. And Father, I pray as we open up now this book, this record of the Gospel of Jesus, put to page by your servant Luke, that you will, by your Holy Spirit, instruct us deeper and further into the person of Jesus. To see now an aspect of Jesus perhaps we haven't considered or seen before or thought through to this depth. And I ask that the words be more than words on the page, but would be, as you are, the Word made flesh. We pray that you will enflesh your words in our hearts and in our minds, in our lives, that that these words would be fleshed out among us that we might live out and walk out what we learn and what we are taught in the Gospel according to Luke of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. We thank You for the words before us and we ask, Lord, that You will now open our hearts and ready our minds to receive the truth of the Gospel. In Jesus' name, Amen. Ancient historians tell us at the time that the book of Luke was written, the Gospel. The world of the first century was sick and tired. (laughs) The world of the first century was sick of religious fanaticism. They had had it up to here with the idolatry of the previous nations. You know what those nations were. Babylon, and the Medo-Persian Empire, and the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. Uh, Daniel taught us about that, talked about all of those, prophesied of them ahead of time. Well, now we jump to the Roman Empire and the days of Rome. And all of that history of four or five hundred years from Daniel to now has just bred in and among people of the first century an exhaustion, if you will. 
sick of the idolatry, religious fanaticism, and frankly tired of Roman hedonism. People of the first century, Rome had been in play for quite a while now, and people were really kind of fed up with the pleasure. Pleasure can only go so far before it begins to get wearisome and old and tiresome. And so the world of the first century was worn out on fanaticism and carnality, and I think, wow, that's an awful lot like the world we live in today. Guzik says, The world then as today longs for what Christianity alone offers, faith founded on fact. Faith founded on fact. And in the midst of this longing that we see in our world today, and this hunger and this desire that people don't even often fully understand, along come scholars and academics to muddy the waters. His name is Riza Aslan, not the lion from the Chronicles of Narnia. Riza Aslan, I don't know if you're familiar with this name. He is a Ph.D. religious scholar of the New York Times number one bestseller just out this previous summer, Zealot, the Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. I heard about this back in August and I jotted down some notes because I knew I wanted to bring this up when we got to Luke. Riza Aslan, the writer of this book, an Iranian-born but now American citizen who fought through very difficult times. His family came here in the 80s under pretty intense persecution. You can imagine being an Iranian-American in America in the 80s and how difficult that was, living in a one-bedroom apartment, his whole family for many years, struggling just to get by. And he went on to great scholarship and study in academia. And he now is a, a professor at the University of California, Riverside. And he wrote a book, again, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Riza Aslan is also a Muslim. And he claims in the writing of his book that his faith is irrelevant. He claims his personal faith is irrelevant in a um, 2013 interview just this past July. He said, I'm not sure what my faith has to do with my 20 years of academic study of the New Testament. I watched this interview play out. He said it three times. He kept coming because the interviewer kept challenging the fact, you're a Muslim, why are you writing about Jesus? Why, why don't you believe that your perspective is slanted? And he said, I am a New Testament scholar. I have been a New Testament scholar for 20 years. I have a PhD. My faith has nothing to do with my academic study. And that's the problem right there. His book is fact without faith. And where there's fact without faith, the facts get messed up. The facts tend to stray from the truth. In the same way you know, people can look at the same thing two different ways and not understand what's really going on. And I believe that's the problem here. Aslan, again, not the lion, claims his book is, quote, an academic work of history. Not about the Christ or about Christianity for that matter, but about an historical man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago in a land the Romans called Palestine. Well, there's your first problem right there. Because Jesus didn't walk a land called Palestine. It wasn't called Palestine for a century after Jesus died and resurrected and ascended back to heaven. It was Judea and Samaria. So his facts are messed up before we even open his book. 
But more importantly than that, how do you write a book about Jesus that's not about the Christ? Does that confuse anyone else? I'm going to write about Jesus, but not the Christ. But He is the Christ. Yeah, but I'm not talking about that. But but that's who He is. Yeah, but I don't want to discuss that. But that's who He is. That's what this is about. Aslan, a Muslim New Testament scholar, overlooks a Hebrew Old Testament truth. Turn back to the book of Psalms. The second Psalm, chapter 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Now granted, that could be spoken at just about any time over the last 2,000 years, but it is especially apropos today. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His, what? Anointed. Anointed. Mashiach. Christos. Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's make sure Christian bakers have to sell their cakes to homosexuals. Let's make sure uh, Christians who own florist shops have to, have to give their way. Even though it's private business, they have to sell for gay weddings. Let's, let's be sure that the, the cross is taken out of things public. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. And I, I shared when we studied this, it's a laugh of incredulity. It's the Lord saying, Really? Really? The Lord scoffs at them. And then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now turn back to Luke. I just wanted you to see that there is a Christ, an anointed one, the anointed of God. Jesus claimed to be the Christ. He lived the life of the Christ as proclaimed prophetically in the Hebrew Scriptures. We have seen over and over and over the descriptions of Jesus and His life fulfilled in Jesus. He is the Christ. And to try to separate Jesus from the Christ is an impossibility. He is the anointed of God. To leave the Christ out of Jesus' nature is kind of like, and these are lame examples, but as best I could do last minute, it's kind of like separating out the philosopher from Plato. You're going to talk about Plato, but you're not going to mention that he was a philosopher. Or or to forget when you're talking about da Vinci that he was an artist. Or that Ringo was a beetle. I mean, really, whatever you want to pick, you can figure something out. But far greater than that, To tell the story of Jesus without the Christ guts the story of its most relevant truth. What's that? It's what I believe to be the key verse in the book of Luke. The key verse is Luke 19, verse 10, where Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the point. It's why Jesus came. And through that coming, to glorify God the Father. Ultimately, it's the glory of God. But the purpose of His coming was to seek and to save the lost. That's what the Anointed One does. Take the anointing out of Jesus if He's just another man, if He's just a zealot, if He's just a political or social activist, as this Aslan claims, then you miss the whole point. After 2,000 years, people are still studying and writing and debating 
and struggling with who Jesus is. So Luke was right, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. He's talking about the apostles. It seemed fitting for me as well to do the same idea. Matthew and Mark were probably already circulating, already written before Luke wrote his gospel. We don't know exactly for sure because all three were written pretty close together. But probably were out there circulating. John is the one we know would come much later. And apparently there were other accounts circulating about Jesus. People already given their opinion. Articles being written. Papyrus being passed about. Having to do with Jesus. Talking about who He was, who He claimed to be, who He may have been. And Dr. Reza Aslan got this much right. There was an historical figure named Jesus of Nazareth, a man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago. Of this we are absolutely sure, both Christian and non-Christian. Scholars and historians verify this. People who were alive at the time, whose writings we have, people who were alive immediately after, whose writings we have, verify the existence of this Jesus of Nazareth. The thing is, the question is not whether Jesus lived or not. We know He did. The right question is, who is this man? Who is He? This man who literally is the hinge point of history. Who is He? I would advise you to read a book, not by Dr. Reza Aslan, but by another doctor, who intelligently combines fact with faith. Luke. Luke is the writer of both the book of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. His two-volume work. Though he never names himself in either one, and yet we know a few things about him, and we know that he wrote these books. I'll show you why as we go along tonight. But let me just give you some introductory stuff. In fact, here's the plan for right now. Some introduction about the Gospel according to Luke, and then we're going to read the first story and get into that. We'll get about to verse 25 and we'll stop for tonight. It's not enough for Spencer, but it may be enough for some of the rest of you. A few things to note about Luke. Dr. Luke was a doctor. And you need to know that because it has direct bearing on this Gospel in a number of different ways. Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. Paul wrote, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. So Luke says hi. Dr. Luke. Throughout the Gospel and Acts, Luke will use medical terminology only a physician would know. And if you go back and those who have studied it in the Greek point out word and phrase after phrase after word in the Greek that were medical language, medical words. I don't know how many of you know uh, Dr. Mark Harris. Mark Harris is a very good friend of mine. Mark and Susan are are, uh, involved here at the bridge. They attend the bridge, part of the fellowship. They were here at the very, very, very beginning. They were part of how God started this whole thing. And I love Mark, and he is just an absolute blast to be around. But when he starts talking medicine, I have no idea. I mean, it's like literally he's talking a totally different language. Luke knows those words. Uses tons. I'm talking tons of medical words. In our English translation, you might miss those. But J. Vernon McGee tells us, Dr. Luke used more medical terms than Hippocrates, the father of medicine, in his writings. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, the Apostle Paul wrote, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, 
Luke was among the many wise. Luke is one of those rarities, an extremely intelligent man, wise according to the flesh. We had Matthew, who wrote the Gospel according to Matthew, who was an IRS agent. We have Mark, who was a flaky missionary. We have John, who was an unschooled, ordinary fisherman. And we come to Luke, and God, as if to round out the whole thing, says, you know, we need a scholar. Let's get a scientist. Let's have a medical doctor. And so Luke was a scientist and a scholar. He was an intelligent, articulate man. His command of the Greek language is among the best in the New Testament. The subject matter of his books shows throughout a keen understanding of medical science. I'll just give you one example, and we'll see more as we study through the book. One example of his understanding of medicine is hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. We've talked about this before. It is a rare, life-threatening condition under severe strain or duress where someone sweats blood, where the capillaries next to the skin expand in that stress and literally through the sweat glands, blood begins to pour out. It actually occurs, it happens, and it happened to Jesus. And Luke's the only one who mentions that. When Jesus is there in the garden, Luke 2, uh, 22, I believe it is, 44, Being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Someone can check that reference for me. It's it's wrong here in my notes for some reason. Is that right? 22? 2244. He's the only one that mentions that. There are a ton of medical connections to miracles, to happenings, in the life and ministry of Jesus in the book of Luke that are not mentioned in any of the other Gospels. Why? Because the other Gospel writers were not doctors. And Luke is. And so it informs his writing. Dr. Luke was also a Gentile. And that's incredibly important. He is the only Gentile writer of the New Testament. And yet as a Gentile writer, again as you'll see in a moment, he wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else, verse for verse. A Gentile writer... How do we know that he was a Gentile? In Philemon, verses 23 and 24, Paul mentions his uh, touring group, his missionary band of brothers, if you will. He mentions Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, who greets you. He mentions Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So that's another place where we see Luke mentioned. Well, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, he mentions this band of brothers again. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These, listen to this, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. What does that mean? They're Jews. Right. Right, so you've got Aristarchus, you've got Mark, and you've got Jesus who's called Justice. And of Paul's immediate band of brothers, these are the Jews. But then Paul makes a distinction. He says in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your number and a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. And also Demas. Epaphras, Luke, and Demas are not of the circumcision. Therefore, Gentiles. Paul delineates between Jews and those who are not from the circumcision. And again, it's important to understand. Luke is a Gentile name, a Greek name. And it's significant for a couple of reasons. For one, for the individuality 
of the Gospel of Luke, the only Gospel written by a Gentile. Matthew, Mark, and John, all from a very Jewish Hebrew perspective, written by Jews, and in many ways for Jews, although John, you could make a different argument, but we're not studying John right now, so that's okay. The individuality of the account, this is a unique Gospel. But we also see the intentionality of the Holy Spirit in including a Gentile among all the other Gospel writers. And Paul would later write this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, and I believe he's talking to all of us here, unless you have Jewish blood, you were the Gentiles in the flesh who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope without God in the world but now, now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ man that's good news that's our gospel right? we have been brought near by the blood of Christ we're not Jews we're not chosen people We we shouldn't even be part of this. But God in His grace and mercy said, no, Gentiles too. And the Holy Spirit in His intentionality said, we need a Gentile writer to express to the Gentile world that God has accepted and received and graced Gentiles as well as Jews. It's interesting that Paul should be the apostle to the Gentiles. You know that? That Peter ends up being the apostle to the Jews even though he's an early uh, evangelist to a Gentile convert, Cornelius. But Paul becomes, for all of his Hebrewness and his Pharisaical righteousness and his, his lineage and his upbringing, I mean, this guy, his, even his study at the feet of Gamaliel, the Apostle Paul was the Apostle to the Gentiles. Why are you talking about Paul so much, Rick? Because Paul and Luke were like this. They were close. He is tight with Luke. Luke is tight with Paul. Hold that thought. Dr. Luke the Gentile also, number three, became a missionary. So he's a doctor, he's a Gentile, he's a missionary. Luke was probably a convert of Paul's. He joins up with him in a place called Troas. Acts chapter 16. Talking about Paul coming to Troas. And that's where we believe that that Luke met up with Paul, perhaps at that point became converted, or perhaps he was converted earlier in the teachings of Paul. But he begins to travel with Paul as a missionary doctor in Acts chapter 16 from Troas forward, a doctor on Paul's second and probably his third missionary journeys. He writes the book of Luke. Again, volume one of a two-volume series including the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, verse 10. says, When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. It's interesting, that's the first time in the book of Acts the word we is used by the writer of the book of Acts. Now he doesn't name himself. But for the first... 15 chapters, it's always talking about they in the third person. Suddenly it shifts to the first person, we, and this is where we believe Luke joined Paul. Acts chapter 16. And then in Acts chapter 17, the writer of Acts, Luke, stays behind at Philippi. Paul goes on without him. The narrative goes back again to the third person, talking about he or talking about they. 
And then we're back again to the first person in Acts chapter 20. So Luke is obviously back with Paul in Acts chapter 20, and he travels again with Paul, and he stays with Paul to the very end. All that to say is Dr. Luke, the missionary Gentile, witnessed firsthand the spread of the Gospel. Kind of a second generation guy. He didn't witness Jesus with his own eyes. He's the only Gospel writer who didn't see Jesus with his own eyes. He investigated, wrote about, sought to understand Him, believed in Him, as you have, as I have, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But he was second gen. And as a second gen follower of Jesus, Luke watched the Gospel explode on the world scene. Paul wrote, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, like Luke. And once the good doctor joined Paul there in Acts chapter 20, as I said, he never left. Fourth thing to know about Dr. Luke, the Gentile missionary was a loyal friend. He was a friend. Irenaeus, in his book Against Heresies, his writing from 180 A.D. Irenaeus, one of my favorite guys to quote because he was so far back. Irenaeus, who talked about, by the way, those who say the whole idea of a pre-tribulation rapture of the church wasn't talked about until the 1800s. Irenaeus preached about it in 180 A.D. The early church believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. So I like this guy Irenaeus. Well, Irenaeus wrote against heresies. In his writing, he says, quote, Luke, the companion of Paul, put down in a book the gospel preached by him. Who? Paul. That Luke was inseparable from Paul, his fellow worker in the gospel, and that is shown by himself. You could call the gospel according to Luke the gospel according to Paul. Because there is strong evidence that what Luke wrote out was from the preaching of Paul. Just as what Mark wrote out in his Gospel was the preaching of Peter. So we have Dr. Luke, the Gentile missionary, scribing the words of Paul in Paul's missionary journeys. Interesting thought. And Paul writes in his swan song, his final letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verse 9, he says, Make every effort to come to me too. For Demas, you know Demas, part of that inner circle, having loved this present world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Everyone else deserted Paul. Luke stuck. No wonder Paul called him the beloved physician. Fifth and final thing to note about Dr. Luke, he was the beloved Gentile missionary who was also a journalist. Verse 3, he said, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. That word taught is interesting. It's instructed, and it's the only place in the New Testament this word is used. And it literally is a word that describes to sound from above. So it, it... it speaks of like a poet or, or a playwright or uh, a speaker standing on a stage speaking from above and, and literally teaching. And so it refers to kind of the oral tradition of teaching the Word of God. And so this Theophilus, uh, Luke writes, you've heard this, you've been 
shared these things, now I want to put it down in writing so you can read through and follow the chronology of what exactly happened. Luke, you could call an investigative reporter. He's a journalist. He probably wrote this around 58 to 60 A.D. That time frame could be a little later than that, although not much later than that, because it had to to have been written sometime before the madness of Nero. Nero's explosive persecution of the church, which kicked off around A.D. 64. It had to be before that. Well, why? Partially because the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome, and this is the final verse of Acts, Acts 28, verse 31. Paul was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. The book of Acts closes with Paul having, though he's under guard, He's able to meet with and talk to anybody. He can disperse and send out letters. He is preaching the gospel unhindered, no problem. It's it's a time of of relative acceptance for the Apostle Paul. But the moment Nero comes on the scene, all hell breaks loose in Rome and Christians are being burned alive. Christians are being martyred and persecuted right and left. It is not a time of freedom. And so scholars believe that Luke wrote sometime both the book of Luke and Acts prior to A.D. 64. And again, the time frame 58 to 60 seems like a really good time for the Gospel to have come on the scene. Who is this most excellent Theophilus? Let's get that one out of the way. Theophilus, a Greek name. Theophilus, Theophilo, Theo, God, and Phileo, friend. So Theophilus is friend of God. Most excellent friend of God. The phrase most excellent leads us to believe this could be a Roman official. It seems like a title that you would offer to someone in office or in rank. So most excellent Theophilus may have been a Roman official. And that may have been his name. It's also possible that he was a Roman official. And this was a pseudonym that Luke used just to kind of protect him because things maybe were starting to not look so good. It's also broader than that. Uh, Some have suggested that it's a pseudonym for anyone who would count themselves a friend of God. Oh, most excellent friend of God, draw near and hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you count yourself a friend of God? Well then, this Gospel is written with you in mind. Another good possibility, by the way, is that Luke may have written the book of Luke and the book of Acts as a defense briefing for Paul before his trial before Caesar. That these two books make up the compilation that Luke is bringing it all together so he has evidence to present before Paul goes on trial in Rome. And of course the book of Acts ends with Paul awaiting that very trial. But Luke's audience is wider. It's an audience to all those who would listen. In fact, this is interesting. Verses 1 through 4, this opening section, is written in classical high ancient Greek. Okay, it's, it's the most learned Greek of the day. But beginning in verse 5, all the way through the rest of the book and through the book of Acts, it's written in the Koine Greek, just the common language of the everyman. And so Luke makes a distinction. Why would he do that? Well, the first four verses would indicate, would signify a proper uh, scholar. In other words, Luke is laying out his credentials. He's saying, I have carefully searched all these things out. 
and I'm not an idiot. <laughs> okay, I, and so he uses this this high Greek to indicate this comes from a place of some knowledge and intellect of, of serious fact finding, and then he goes into the koine, which is for everyone, for all of us to understand. Now, one more thing before we get to the story, quickly, a few features here of the gospel itself, the gospel according to Luke. Number one. Luke is the most comprehensive gospel. More than any of the others before or after, he covers the life of Christ. He goes from the manger to the Mount of Olives. In fact, he precedes the manger. He's the only one who does this. Well, you could say John does. John goes to the very beginning. So John reaches back further than anybody. But Luke, in the chronological history, starts actually with the annunciation of John the Baptist, of his birth, all the way to the ascension of Jesus. And he is more comprehensive with everything in between than any of the other Gospel writers. This Gentile, as I said before, penned more of the New Testament verse by verse than anyone else. 28% of the New Testament is Luke and Acts. And Luke wrote it. He includes in this comprehensive Gospel 23 parables, 18 of which are not found in any of the other Gospels including the Good Samaritan, only found here in Luke, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, only found here in Luke, the rich man and Lazarus, only found here in Luke, and we can go on and on, but you'll see these, a number of the great parables that you'll only find in Luke's Gospel. It's filled with investigative research and interviews, and by the way, more first-hand testimony of Mary herself is reflected in the book of Luke than in any other Gospel. And that's interesting. Secondly, not only is it the most comprehensive gospel, Luke is the most chronological gospel. As he says in verse 3, he wrote it out in consecutive order. Now that doesn't mean that the other gospels are inaccurate. It just means there were other intentions in putting the stories where they were placed by Mark or by Matthew or by John. Luke just goes line by line, walks it out in a chronological fashion to make it clear and understandable. Number three, Luke is not only the most comprehensive, the most chronological, it is also the most natural of the Gospels. What do you mean by that? It is the Gospel of the Son of Man. It is the Gospel that deals on the most physical level of any of them with Jesus, the most human accounts. Talking about His physical nature. We see Jesus' physical body weakened. We, we see Jesus eating. In fact, um, Luke discusses and talks about more meals with Jesus than any other Gospel. I like that. If you want to have dinner with Jesus, this is where you go. In the Gospel of Luke. He's constantly eating with people. Why does Luke point that out? Well, especially in first century culture and Middle Eastern culture even today, a meal is where you get to know someone. You want to really sit down and get, get into someone's mind, into their heart, have a meal with them. Go to dinner. Go to lunch. That's where you start to relax as you're eating and you know the food's falling out of your mouth as you're trying to talk. And, and, but that's the place. And Luke recognizes that. And it's a very natural, very uh, human way of interacting. We see Christ's humanity more in Luke than anywhere else. Luke's favorite phrase for Jesus is the Son of Man. Luke is the Gospel with the face of the man. Remember how the cherubim of Ezekiel had the four faces, and we've discussed before how those four faces correlate with the four Gospels amazingly. Well, if the face of the man has to do with any Gospel, it's Luke. A picture of 
Christ's humanity. We see even in His bodily post-resurrection walk to Emmaus. We see Him eating fish. I mentioned this recently. Snacking on fish in front of the apostles. They don't believe He's real. They're afraid He's a spirit. They think He's a ghost. Oh, we have a ghost among us. And He says, You got any fish? Yeah, and they hand it to Him and He eats it. Why? Look, I'm flesh and bones. Still, I'm just resurrected. So that wall was not a problem for me. I know I keep mentioning the wall thing. I just think that will be so cool. (laughs) To not have to go around and out the door, but just go right through the wall. You know, I'm in my office. I need to head out. I just go right through the wall into my garage into the car and I'm off. Don't even have to open the car door. I'm just in the car. I don't even probably need the car. I'll just go. I don't know how it's going to work, but I'm excited about it. And so here's Jesus in His resurrected body, but He is a physical being as well as spiritual, as well as glorified. There's something amazing. We don't quite understand about that yet. We will. Luke is the most natural of the Gospels. In it we see Jesus as the ideal Son of Man. And I've shared this I know before. But the wonderful thing about Jesus, and Luke really shows us this, is not only does He give us the ideal representation of God, but He gives us the ideal representation of man. Men, if you want the perfect man to emulate, emulate Jesus. Women, if you want the perfect person to emulate, don't emulate Mary. Emulate Jesus. Well, but He's a man. He's the perfect human. And we see the perfect tenderness and the perfect compassion as well as the perfect strength. He covers the whole gamut. He is the perfect human being. It's the most natural of the Gospels. Luke is, number four, also, interestingly, the most supernatural. That is, in terms of presentation. They're all supernatural because the Holy Spirit inspired them. But the Gospel of Luke has the most supernatural content. The glorious Christmas song of the angels is here in Luke. We didn't know about that before Luke wrote it down. There are over 20 miracles in the Gospel of Luke that are not mentioned in any of the other Gospels. Luke contains the full account of the virgin birth. Isn't it interesting that we have a candid medical report by the only Gospel writing doctor? He's the one who mentions the virgin birth. He's the one who goes into it in depth. He's the one who brings it to the table. The doctor does. Not the fisherman who people could say, he's a fisherman. They're always telling fish stories, you know. He's a tax collector. You're going to trust him, you know. No, it's Luke the doctor talking about a miraculous birth. Who would know better than a doctor? Luke contains that full miracle. Luke also talks more about the Holy Spirit than any other gospel writer. Of course, you know in the book of Acts, the the working and the moving of the Holy Spirit through the church is phenomenal. And Luke details all of that. But understand, this is a man of science. This is a medical doctor. This is a guy who has a great intellect, and he's the one God chose to speak more about the Holy Spirit than anybody else. Because the Holy Spirit is, is not some flimsy thing. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is God's Spirit. And Luke is the one chosen to talk most about Him. By the way, Luke also uses a single word more than any other Gospel writer, a great word, the word joy. He talks about joy more than anybody else. Why is that significant? Well, Luke witnessed the joy of the Spirit in action. You know that joy is the second fruit of the Spirit. 
And if the Spirit is present in a place, there should be joy there. If the Holy Spirit is present in a life, there should be joy in that life. If there's no joy, you got to wonder, is the Spirit there? Because joy is one of the great attributes, one of the great fruits of the Holy Spirit. Luke saw it. He saw and described the Holy Spirit on and alongside and upon and within people as detailed throughout the book of Acts. And then he talks about joy more than anyone else. And I don't think that's coincidental. Because the more you talk about the Holy Spirit, the more you're going to talk about joy. And the more joyful you are, the more the Holy Spirit is present. Acts chapter 13 verse 52 says the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Because you don't separate the two. You know what? I'm sorry, I do not believe there's any such thing as a sour, dour Pentecostal. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) Lifting our hands again. You know? It's joy. The presence of the Spirit brings about joy. Romans 14, 17 says, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So if you need a little joy in your life, perhaps what you need is a little more room in your heart for the Holy Spirit to fill up more. Allow Him to take up more space in your life and you will be a more joyful person. I guarantee it. Finally, the last thing to note, remember Dr. Luke is a Gentile. So of all the Gospels, number five, Luke is the most evangelical. The most evangelical. Oh, the Gospels are all the the Gospel of Jesus Christ, but Luke is the one who uses that word more than any other. Gospel. Euangelion. He's the one who talks about the proclamation of the gospel more than anybody else. And remember the key verse, Luke 19.10. I'll read it to you again. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. little introduction for you. Let's do a story. Wanna? Verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, not Palestine by the way. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they both were advanced in years. Boy, God knows how to pick them, doesn't He? Abraham and Sarai, Abram and Sarai. And here now we have Zacharias and Elizabeth. These are the days of Herod. This refers to Herod the Great, that megalomaniac, that master architect who left his imprints all over Israel. And you can see them today. Amazing ruins, Masada, Caesarea Maritima, Herodium. The Temple Mount itself was constructed by Herod the Great built up as a massive box, a plateau on which the, his, his glorious and grand retrofit of the temple would take place. He was, a, he was a, an amazing man, a great mind. And again, a megalomaniac. He truly was. And he was vicious and brutal. And this is what's taking place during his days. We're going to see more of Herod the Grinch later in the birth story. Four things are immediately obvious, immediately clear about the couple. Actually, I'm going to give you five things. Number one, they have a great lineage. 
You know, you've got Zacharias of the division of Abijah and Elizabeth, who is one of the daughters of Aaron. So this is a Levitical family, a high priestly family, with a long and glorious lineage going all the way back to the tribe of Levi, the very beginning. They are righteous. They are blameless. How many people can you say that about? I mean, wow, to have your name listed in the Scripture as blameless. An amazing couple. They're senior citizens. <laughs> well, they are, Deb. <laughs> and, and that wasn't even intended to be funny. They just... They just... What do you want me to say? They're old? Oh, I, I can say that. They've been around a while. And... Her barrenness, they they are advanced in years. That's the phrase that Luke uses. Which means another thing. They are stigmatized. Stigmatized by Elizabeth's barrenness. In that day especially, for a woman to be barren meant no matter how blameless and righteous and how great your lineage and how sweet and wonderful a person you were, if you were barren in those days, something's got to be up. There's got to be a curse on you of some kind. That was Jewish thought. And so you have this marvelous Levitical priestly couple and she can't have a child and and in the first century, well, there'd be talk. Oh, there goes Zacharias. Yeah, you know, his wife. Yeah, can't do that. Something must be going on. Yeah, well, there's no proof. I know they're blameless, but she can't have, there's got to be something up. And immediately, by the way, we see another feature of Luke's Gospel account. And that is Luke details Jesus' dealings with the downtrodden, the social outcast, the lower class women. He treats women in amazing ways, and Luke really picks up on that. Luke picks up on Jesus' interaction with children more than any of the other Gospel writers. The overlooked and the stigmatized, Luke deals with them. Luke points out all the stories of Jesus having to do with the lower class, if you will, of people, the outcasts. You know the whole Bible really does? I mean, go back to Sarai who was barren, Hagar who was cast out, Hannah who was childless, Ruth who was a Moabitess. It goes on and on and on. The judge, the stigmatized, the outcast, the sorrowful. And the Scriptures tell us in Psalm 68 verse 5 that God is a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows. That's God in His holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. That's a great verse. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And who better than Jesus Christ to recognize those who are stigmatized? Luke's going to talk about and deal with the stigma of Jesus' birth that would follow him his entire ministry in life. Oh yeah, you're the miracle child. Right. Isaiah 53 verse 3 tells us, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And I want to tell you, I'm pointing this out because Jesus, nobody, nobody cares for the outcast like Jesus does. Nobody knows what it's like to be branded like Jesus does. 
And if you're lonely, and if you're outcast, and if you feel stigmatized in any way, shape, or form for any reason in your life, understand that nobody like Jesus understands. And He knows how it feels. He's been there. So you have this couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth, Zach and Eliza. Verse 8. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. This would be the morning incense offering at the temple, and it was a big, big deal. Hundreds of people showed up for this. This was the sweet hour of prayer for the Jews. The morning incense, the, the priests in, in high priestly status would, would enter into the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place where the altar of incense was, where the, where the menorah was, the golden lampstand, and the table of showbread. And one man would go in there and would offer on each morning the daily incense. Hundreds of Jews gathering around there at the massive temple complex and they're praying and they're waiting and a hushed silence would come about. The people at this time are still crying out for deliverance. In fact, crying out for deliverance in a memory of Egypt. Because now Rome is becoming more and more oppressive, more heavy-handed there in the first century. And these Jews are crying out for God to deliver them. It's been 500 years since the prophecies of Daniel. 400 years since the last prophet vocalized the word of God, Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi. And at this time, it was, it was all stop on the Temple Mount. When the priest went in to give the offering of incense in the morning, a hush would fall. And he would go inside and the people would wait. And they would wait for him to finish offering the incense and offering up the prayers of the people. And they would wait for him to come back out. And this is Zacharias' day to do it. And it's a unique day. Zacharias, as we've already learned, was of the priestly division of Abijah. You can study that out in 1 Chronicles 23 and 24. It talks about the divisions of the priests. There were many of them. But here's what you got to know. Among all of the divisions of the Levites, there were so many. In fact, there were estimates of about 20,000 Levites in the priestly line who could go into the temple and perform these priestly duties. 20,000 of them. They had to be divided up. That's why Luke tells us what was going on is they would cast lots. You cast a lot to see which Levite got to go in. Because there were some who would not go in once their entire lives because there were too many of them. The lot fell on Zacharias on this day. Chosen by God. Coincidence? Not when God is about to send a forerunner of the Messiah. Verse 11, An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias, rightly so, was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, I used to wonder, what was Zacharias praying? 
I used to think he was praying for a child. I did. But but the Bible tells us that he was advanced in years, and so was his wife. He had to know it was fruitless at this point to be praying for a child. Besides the fact when the priest went in there to offer the incense, he was carrying the weight of the prayers of the people. So to pray for the birth of his own child, I mean, I guess you know he could slip it in there along with, deliver us and can I have a kid? <laughs> you know, maybe he could slip it in there, but it might be a little selfish for the priest, I don't know, in the midst of his one shot. But perhaps he, he was, I, I kind of don't think so. But there's a problem because the angel says your petition has been heard. So doesn't that imply he was in there praying for a son? God never forgets a prayer. Your petition has been heard, Zacharias. And that doesn't mean he was praying it right then. He could have prayed it 40 years earlier. He could have prayed it back when he was a young man and they first started trying to have a child and it wasn't happening. And they kept praying and it just wasn't happening. But my guess is totally a guess. It's just Pastor Rick speculating. But a time came for Zacharias and Elizabeth when they stopped praying for a child because you don't have a child when you're advanced in age according to the Scriptures. But God never forgets. We pray and we forget, don't we? We pray all the time. Lord, would you take care of this? And then we get on about our lives and 10, 20, 30 years go by and all of a sudden He answers the prayer and we don't even remember praying it. In fact, we don't even know it's an answer because we have no record of ever having asked for it. God does. He keeps track of every prayer. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. The four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. He's got a place to keep them. Bowls of incense. And there's that powerful and beautiful connection of the altar of incense and our prayers. The the incense going up, the sweet-smelling aroma is representative of the prayers of God's people and He keeps them. You pray it, He keeps it. You forget it, He does not. Revelation 8 verse 3 says, Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God and out of the angel's hand. God has our prayers ever before Him. He answers it His way in His time, but He always answers And this is God's time. You're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. The name John. The Greek name for John is Ionis. Or Ionis. The Hebrew name, Yohanan. And it means Yahweh has graced. Yahweh has graced. Yahweh has given His grace. What a perfect name for John. And the angel told him, this is the name you are to name this boy. So this is a God-chosen name Yahweh has graced. It was the intentionality of the Lord to name John that name. He graced Zacharias and Elizabeth with a son. He graced Israel by sending John as the forerunner of grace and truth. And he graced the world through the Son, Jesus Christ. Now listen to the pre-description of John. This is what he's going to be like. Verse 15, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. What this tells us is it sounds like John's going to be a Nazarite. 
Nazarite who took the vow, they couldn't get their hair cut, they couldn't have any strong drink touch their lips, and they couldn't touch dead things. Those were the three biggies. The Nazarite was the one whose life was committed and devoted completely to the Lord, and these three areas were, were forbidden off limits. John will be a Nazarite, like Samson was a Nazarite, or Samuel of old, he was a Nazarite. These three we know in the Scriptures were Nazarites. But remarkably, John the Baptist would have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb, before he's even born. That's incredible. So here's Elizabeth with her baby growing inside of her and the Holy Spirit in the baby. I mean, that's mind-boggling. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. And apparently He willed to enter into the fetus. John the fetus. Before He was John the Baptist, He was John the fetus. And the Holy Spirit indwelled Him at that time. In fact, in verse 44 of the chapter, we'll get there next week, but when Elizabeth first sees Mary, John the fetus does a little back... Backflip, you know, in the womb. Woohoo! <laughs> Incredible stuff. Verse 16. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now that's the prophecy that concludes Malachi. The last verse of Scripture, the last of the, of the Hebrew Bible, the last word spoken by God 400 years earlier. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. I'm going to send Elijah. And so the question rises, is John the Baptist that Elijah? Yes. And no. (laughs) What are you talking about, Rick? Yes and no. He is and he isn't. Turn over to Matthew real quickly. Matthew chapter 11. Let's clear this one up because it is a confusing one. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. The disciples of John the Baptist, his, his little cadre had come to find out a little bit more about Jesus. And they departed, and Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. Listen to this. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? (laughs) Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written... Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way for you. That's Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now that's saying something. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Look around. 
Do you realize there's not a person here among us tonight who is not greater than John the Baptist, who is greater than all of those born among women? Why is that? You have the Holy Spirit. You are covered with the grace and mercy of God. You are loved by Jesus. That's what makes a person great. But he says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, until until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. He's referring there to the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership trying to contramand the whole uh, Jewish thing. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, listen to this, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. John's Elijah. But he's also not Elijah. What are you talking about? Go over to Matthew 17. Matthew chapter 17, verse 11. Well, let's go back to verse 10. Now let's go back to verse 9. Verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, this is right after the transfiguration, Jesus commanded them saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Subject change. And his disciples asked him, Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Note, John the Baptist is dead at this point. And Jesus says, Elijah is coming. But he said John was Elijah. John had come. Elijah is coming and will restore all things, but I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they wished, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now are you confused? Jesus said, Elijah's coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And there's your cue there. The timing of Malachi is that Elijah, and I believe, yes, Elijah the prophet, Elijah himself, will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will come at the beginning of the tribulation. I believe Elijah is one of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. I think Moses is the other one. And Elijah himself, Scripture says, prophecy tells us, will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Well, this wasn't the great and terrible day of the Lord, was it? This is the first coming of Christ. This is the coming where grace enters into the world. But Jesus says, Elijah has come. What are you talking about? Now go back to Luke. And what is it that the angel tells Zacharias in verse 17? It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist is a type of Elijah. He was like Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. He prophesied like Elijah. He drew the people in repentance back to the Lord like Elijah. Elijah, when he rose in the history of Israel, his purpose as a prophet was to draw the people back Remember, he's the one who destroyed the 400 prophets of Baal as the children of Israel were going off after Baal worship. And Elijah pulled the people back. That was John's job. And so John was a type of Elijah. Which is why Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah. What he's saying is, he's a type. He's a picture of Elijah who is to come. So both take place. Elijah is going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. John the Baptist already came in the spirit and power of Elijah. 
And Elijah himself is still coming. Verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? Have you ever said that to God? Rick, I want you to start a church. How do I know? I'll tell you what. To to my disgrace, (laughs) the first year of the bridge, I probably ask that question every day. How do I know? Can you just show... Can, you, can I flip the fleece just one more time? You know, I just need something today, Lord. Over and over. This is not a surprising question for Zacharias to ask. He's blameless. He's righteous. He's a high priest. He loves the Lord. Not high priest, but he's high among the priests. He's a Levite. He loves the Lord. He's in temple service. But you know what? He's a man like you and me. How will I know? I'm an old man. And Have you seen my wife? <laughs> and my wife is advanced in years, he says. <laughs> So he didn't believe? No, he's, he's kind of like the father of the demon-possessed boy. He believed, but he needed help with his unbelief. Which is a lot like, I think, most of us. Oh, we believe? We just need help with the unbelief. You know, maybe you're not like me in this way, but I have no problem with the big things. Ask Steve. The building's going to get built, and we're going to get moved in. It's going to be amazing. I'm not, even, I'm not even one iota concerned. Is there a financial shortfall? Whatever. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. As I've said, He'll sell a few, we'll build a building. It'll be good. You know? I'm not worried about it. I'm truly no concern whatsoever. The big things, I have no problem. It's the little things that get me. I believe in the resurrection. Big thing. I believe the rapture is coming. I believe Jesus is going to call us out of here literally into the clouds to meet Him in the, in the air. It's going to happen in a twinkle of an eye. It's a big thing. I believe it. No problem. No question. I believe in creation. <laughs> I believe in the cross. I believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. God in the flesh. All of this. No problem believing that. But the little things? Are my kids going to be okay? Man, I don't know. I, that, how can I be sure? The day-to-day stuff. That's where unbelief creeps in in family among friends finances day to day just commonalities of life do you find that to be the case? man I'd sit down in church and believe big things but then I gotta go home and deal with every day and it's like Lord how can I be sure? my friends let me remind you what Zacharias needed to be reminded God is present in the personal that's where he works Oh yeah, he does the big things. But it's the little things where he meets you and says, let's have an intimate relationship. Let me in to the little things. That's where faith, I believe, grows the most, is when we start to really allow God to tinker with our personal lives. And don't forget, he keeps all of our petitions and prayers. He's got them all in bowls. All he has to do is pour them out. Oh, there's a good one, let's give him that. Let's do this. He's got it all. Verse 19, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. Hey, Gabriel's back. We just saw him last week in Daniel, right? Gabriel's back. Can you imagine, by the way, Zacharias' reaction when the angel, who's already got him freaked out beyond belief, says, I'm Gabriel. From the... Daniel's Gabriel? You're... I, I've read about you. Can I get an autograph? I mean, what would he say? 
I'm Gabriel. I mean, wow, I would fall on the ground. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring this, to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when all these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. You know what unbelief does? It makes you mute. (laughs) It does. Unbelief doesn't prevent you from receiving the promises of God. Note that. Gabriel doesn't say, Zacharias, because you didn't believe, we're going to find someone else. (coughs) No, the birth's still going to happen. You're just not going to be able to enjoy it as much. What's the first thing a dad wants to do, or a pre-dad wants to do when he finds out his wife is pregnant? Tell people! Hey! I'm going to be a man! (laughs) I am a man! I'm going to have a son! Or maybe a daughter! Whatever God gives me! Hallelujah! Celebrate with me! Zacharias, you're going to be an Abba! Hip, hip! (laughs) Nothing. You can't talk about this, Zach. You're going to be mute. That is what unbelief does. Gang, it makes us mute. (laughs) Poor Zacharias. He couldn't cheer. He couldn't chum it up with his buds at the temple water cooler. (laughs) He couldn't share the good news. He couldn't even announce what was coming because of unbelief. That's why the church doesn't announce what's coming. It's because of unbelief. And so we go mute. Because if we believed, muteness would not take place. Unbelief silences the gospel. Unbelief silences the joyful voice of faith. By the way, did you know that Zacharias was not just mute, he was deaf? Look over in verse 62. Elizabeth wants to name John John. People don't believe her. And so, they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him to be called. Why did they make signs to him? He couldn't hear either. He's deaf and mute. Gang, unbelief deafens the voice of faith. Unbelief keeps us from being able to hear what God is speaking to us. That's why, with all due respect, Riza Aslan is not qualified to write a life of Jesus. Because he doesn't believe in Jesus. He accepts the historical figure lived, but he does not believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And facts without faith deafens and mutes the truth. Facts get twisted and misunderstood and misrepresented. Well, finishing up the story, after the incense priest was finished, he would exit the holy place. He met up with two other priests who were waiting right outside the doors. And then he would raise his hands and bless the people. And usually with Aaron's benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The Lord lift His countenance upon you and give you peace. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26. That was the typical benediction that the priest would give when he came out after this uh, offering of the incense in the morning. Not Zacharias. Verse 21, the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. He'd been in there a while. 
But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them. (laughs) I'm going to have a son, and I can't tell you! And he remained mute. And when the days of his priestly service ended, he went back home. (laughs) He went back home. And you know what I love about this? And I I really don't mean to be... uh, too graphic here, but verse 24 says, After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months. Now, note that. She became pregnant naturally. This was not a virgin birth. Zacharias went home after his temple service, and he did his part. Best way, best way I can put it. And, and I mean that seriously. I'm, again, not trying to be crude. Zacharias did believe the Lord. Right? Because he went home to Elizabeth. You're going to have a son and you're going to name him John. Can you imagine him trying to describe that, to explain that to Elizabeth without being able to tell her? (laughs) What's he going to (laughs) say? Where the Holy Spirit is, there is joy. There is joy. But you know what? Praise the Lord. What Zacharias does is he believes God. And he does his part. That's all God ever asks you to do. When the Lord tells you to do something, do it. Joyfully. Go to it. Partner with the Lord. The Lord, and this, by the way, is the reason the angel Gabriel comes to Zacharias is to tell him, you're going to have a son. Believe it. Trust it. Now be involved in this. Do your part. And because Zacharias did trust the Lord, Elizabeth conceived. She she was in seclusion for five months. It doesn't mean she was embarrassed or even hiding her pregnancy. In fact, the first five months of pregnancy, you don't see a whole... Not a lot shows, right? It's not until the later part of the pregnancy where it really starts to show. And so she wasn't hiding it. The seclusion, many think was Elizabeth was so overwhelmed with thankfulness that she decided to devote those five months to the Lord. And so she was in five months of quiet time, five months of worship, five months of thanking the Lord for His provision. And this is what she said, verse 25, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when He looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Well, that's what God does. Yahweh has graced. God gives favor. And that would be the message of John. Get ready. Grace is coming. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will cry out. Grace is coming. It's on the way. Are you ready for it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise You. We thank You. Father, for opening up now before us the Gospel according to Luke. We thank You for Luke, Your servant, for Paul, Your servant, for servants like Zacharias and Elizabeth, so real and so down to earth and so tangible and so much like us. Well, Father, I pray that You will give us a faith that is not mute, that You will give us ears that are not deaf to Your voice, that as we hear You, we will speak, as we are empowered by Your Spirit, Lord, we will produce and we will be fruitful just as Zacharias and Elizabeth would produce and be fruitful. Father, we pray for the the outpouring of Your Spirit. 
on this fellowship and for the continuance of the Gospel. And I pray, Lord, that tonight You will remind us just how graced we really are. We praise Your name, Jesus. And it's in Jesus we pray. Amen.